Let us pray. Blessed you are, Lord, great God, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Your commandments are our delight, and your grace is our greatest joy. Fill us with that glad light, that warm flame and peaceful glow, your Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, the Counselor Christ has sent. Lead us in the path of your commandments, in the ancient way of your will. As we prepare to come to your word this evening, O Lord, we pray your blessing upon this time, that you prepare and open our eyes, our hearts, our minds, our ears to receive your word. We thank you for your word, O Lord. Lord, please give your servants your words to speak. May they be your words and not mine. Help me to be attentive to your Holy Spirit's guiding and leading. And may your name, your most holy, precious, and awesome name, be honored, glorified, and magnified here this evening. In your precious Son, Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles this evening to the book of Romans, where we'll be taking a look at Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, where we'll be reading verses 9 through 20. Romans 3, verses 9 through 20. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know what, uh, that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. This is the word of the Lord. I also invite you to turn with me if you, uh, into the back of your Psalter hymnals and stand if you are able as we turn to take a look at Lord's Day 2 of the Heidelberg Catechism, where we'll read responsively the three questions there. Questions 3, 4, and 5, you can find it on page 9 in the back of your blue Psalter hymnals. I'll read the question and then we'll respond together with the answer. Question three. How do you come to know your, to know your misery? Answer. The law of God tells me. Question four. What does God's law require of us? Answer. Christ teaches us in this in summary in Matthew 22. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. 
you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Question five. Can you live up to all this perfectly? Answer, no. I have a natural tendency to hate God and my neighbor. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, you might be wondering or thinking perhaps, Josh, why did you choose such a sobering passage to start off the new year? Well, just as we took time this morning to reflect and remember where we're heading, the longing that we are to have for the presence of the Lord, it's also important to take time to reflect on where we've been, from where, remembering from where God has saved and redeemed us from, reflecting on his goodness and grace to us through the precious blood of his Son. We see this in the structure of the Heidelberg Catechism as well. Before delving into God's grace and mercy shown to us in Jesus Christ, The Catechism addresses our sin and misery. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, we don't necessarily like discussing the topic of sin, of our sin. And yet we see Scripture address it just as well as God's great grace and mercy. As Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3, 16-17, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so we see that just as we address encouraging topics from Scripture, we also see that at times we need to address and reflect on difficult and uncomfortable topics. But we're going to walk through it together this evening. We see that that's what Paul addresses here, the difficult topic of sin and its effects on our relationship first and foremost with God, but also its impact on our relationships with our fellow human beings, both a vertical and a horizontal which is shown to us through the law. And so we're going to explore this theme together this evening. Through the law, God shows us our fallenness and our need for Christ. Through the law, God shows us our fallenness and our need for Christ. With that in mind, let's take a look at God's word together. Now before we dive into the text itself with any passage, but especially when reading something written by Paul, it's important to ask questions such as, where has Paul been? And where is he heading? Now, Paul's a pretty logical guy, and so what he has said previously influences what he is about to say. And what, he has, what he's about to say will influence on what comes after. He's gradually building his case. And so, for now, the question that we should consider is, where has Paul been? What has he been addressing prior to our passage of Romans 3, 9 through 20? As we take a look at the first two chapters of Romans, we see that after his greeting to the believers in Rome, Paul takes a look first at Gentiles and then at Jews, showing how neither are righteous, but rather how both are under sin. Paul shows how the Gentiles suppress the truth by their wickedness, and then shows how Jews condemn themselves as Paul asks them in 2 verse 23, you who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? And then in verse 24, as it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So all of this leads up to our passage, to Paul's opening statement in verse 9 of chapter 3. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? What, is, what Paul is getting at here is asking the question if there is any difference between Jews and Gentiles in this regard, to which Paul responds, not at all. 
We've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are, under, are all under sin. Now, this is not that both Jew and Gentile alike simply sin, but rather that they are under its power, basically held as sin's prisoners. As one person puts it, this is Paul's and the Bible's analysis of human predicament. People by nature are addicted to sin. They are imprisoned under it, unable to free themselves by anything they can do. Paul's going to go on to show this throughout the rest of our passage in 10, verses 10 through 18. He spells it out in those verses as he strings together various Old Testament quotes. I'll read these verses again, and as I do, listen and take in the weight of the words and phrases that Paul references here. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of their eyes. Paul starts out by pointing out the universality of sin in verses 10 through 12, stating that there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. No one seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Here we are reminded that no one obeys God as he ought to be obeyed which is to be fully. He is to be fully obeyed, as well as that no one seeks God. As we take a look at the world, the culture around us, people might often say that they're seeking God, that they are, quote-unquote, pursuing religion. But as we take a closer look at a number of the world religions today, we see that they tend to be atheistic. It being a search for a richer life more than a search for God, as one person puts it. And then Paul closes this universal look at sin, stating, All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. We see that Paul then gets into examples of the universality of sin by taking a look at various sins. Like Paul does at various, at different points throughout his letters, he doesn't pull any punches here describing our sin and misery. Just take a look at the descriptive language that he quotes here. Their throats are open graves. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. Here we see the destructive nature and force of sin. The devastating effect it can and does have. We're told in the book of James the destructive force that our tongues, our words can have, such as in 3 verses 9 through 12. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. And likewise, in violence, we see a warning against joining with those who would do evil. 
with ones whose feet are swift to shed blood, as Paul speaks about here, and the end that awaits them. We see this, the end that awaits them, specifically in the beginning of the book of Proverbs. These men lie in wait for their own blood. They ambush only themselves. Such are the paths of all who go after ill-gotten gain. It takes away the life of those who get it. And ultimately, as Paul points out in verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. One person summarizes what Paul is getting at here well when they write, the core problem is rebellion against God and enthronement of the self. That leads to disregard for others, manifest in lies, curses, bloodshed, and strife. Based on all of this, we hear what question and answer five of the Heidelberg Catechism is getting at. When it answers, no, I have a natural tendency to hate God and my neighbor. But Paul's not finished quite yet. Paul, having made his point of how all are under the power and hold of sin, turns now in verse 19 and says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Paul points out that the law speaks to those who are, who are under it. But who is Paul referring to here who are under the law? Based on the language that Paul uses here, most likely he is once again referring to the Jews, the reason for which, as one person puts it, Paul knows full well that the most difficult case he has to prove is that Jews who are recipients of God's revelation and covenant blessing are sinners accountable for God. By proving from the Old Testament then that Jews are condemned, Paul feels it legitimate to extend that verdict to all and that's what this language of the tail end of verse 19 is. It's judicial. It's as if the one on trial has nothing left to say to the charges brought against them, silencing themselves with their hands over their mouth, acknowledging their guilt. And so must wait for the verdict to be passed completely at the judge's mercy. Paul then connects everything that he said before, everything that we've been taking a look at so far this evening to verse 20 with the word therefore. Take a look with me at verse 20 there. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Here Paul asserts that no one is declared righteous by observing the law. Rather, that nothing we can do can atone for us, can make us righteous before God, can bring us into a right standing with God. But rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. There are different uses of the law, and this is one of them. The law reveals our sin, as we said in question and answer three of the catechism. How do you come to know your misery? The law of God tells me. And as we saw earlier, we cannot keep God's law perfectly. So we've taken a look at where Paul has been what he's had to say in our passage of Romans 3, 9 through 20. But there's one other important question for us to ask. Where is Paul going? Where is he headed with this? As it stands, we're left in a pretty bleak place, aren't we? Mankind is left with hands over one's mouth, condemned, awaiting the judge's verdict, asking how one can be made right with a holy and just God. We see that scripture both cuts to the heart, which we see going on here in our passage, but we see that scripture also comforts and encourages as well, which Paul turns to in verses 21 through 24 just after our passage. 
But now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God doesn't just leave us standing there with our hands over our mouths, silenced in condemnation. He doesn't just abandon us in our sin and misery, but rather the just judge has graciously and mercifully sent his only son, Jesus Christ. God come in the flesh to dwell among us, to live the perfect life that we never could. And go to the cruel cross in our place, taking our sin, our punishment that we so rightly deserved for all our sin and rebellion, the just wrath of God on sin, so that we might not have to endure separation from God for all eternity, but rather he experienced that separation in our place, in our stead, clothing those who believe in him in his righteousness through his atoning sacrifice on the cross. And then three days later, he rose again from the dead, conquering sin and death. There might be some here this evening or some maybe tuning in online who don't know the Lord. Maybe you've been seeking for a way to make yourself right with God, thinking if I just do enough good, he'll accept me. But as we said before, nothing that we could ever do can bring us to a right relationship with God. It is only through Christ's precious blood shed on the cross that we are brought back into a right relationship with God. And he holds out that free gift of grace, the beautiful and wonderful gift of eternal life purchased at the price of his son's blood. Come receive that free gift of his grace. Repent of your sin, believe in Jesus Christ, and submit your life to him. Praise be to God that in Christ Jesus, we as believers have been made new creations. As Paul writes elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 17 through 19, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. As we see throughout the rest of Scripture, such as in 1 John chapters 2 and 3, our lives aren't to be characterized by sin, by the things that Paul has described here in our passage this evening. While our lives might not be and should not be characterized by sin, as new creations in Christ, we may still falter and fall at times, doing and saying things that are not becoming of God's children, but rather reflect the old way of life. Maybe we find it easy to see the speck in other people's eyes when we have a plank in our own. Judging others for things that they're doing wrong while we in turn do the same things, just like Paul has talked about earlier in Romans. Maybe we still at times hurt others with our words, either behind their backs or even directly to their faces, perhaps. Maybe we pursue and set up idols in our own lives rather than seeking God at times. There are any number of ways that we can easily falter and fall. But as we said before, thanks be to God that he hasn't abandoned us, but that we can come to him in repentance for those times that we falter and fail, confessing our sin before his throne of grace and mercy. 
and then through the enabling work of his Holy Spirit in our lives. We can turn once again to live in a way that honors and glorifies God as he works through his Holy Spirit to make us more and more into the likeness of Christ, into the likeness of our Savior. As we now live out of gratitude for what Christ has done for us on the cross. It's also important to keep in mind concerning forgiveness. We may need to do this often among family and close friends. Confessing sin is like taking out the garbage. We should do it regularly, as one person puts it. There's one other thing that's important for us to remember when it comes to our sin and misery and God's grace. As we reflect on our sin, but also God's great grace and mercy towards us, we need to be wary of falling into the mindset of where we see and use God's grace as a license to sin. Paul warns against this at various points throughout this letter. A clear example for us can be found at the beginning of Romans 6, verses 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? We see clearly that God's grace is not to be viewed as a license to continue in sin. But rather we are to seek and live lives, honor and glorify God through the empowering work of his Holy Spirit in our lives as he continues to form us more and more into the likeness of Christ through the process of sanctification. Rather, as we reflect on our sin and the immensity of God's grace towards us, this should lead rather to a deepened appreciation for his forgiveness, his mercy, his grace. It should lead to a richer love and appreciation for God. Brothers and sisters in Christ, may we take time in our day-to-day lives to reflect on the good news of the gospel regularly that we would take time to reflect on the grace of God in our lives, reflecting on where he has redeemed us from. Brothers and sisters of Second CRC, as we mentioned at the beginning, the topic of sin can be, uncom- can be an uncomfortable topic to talk about, especially with it being the beginning of a new year. But as we see throughout Scripture, both topics of encouragement as well as difficult topics like sin are addressed throughout it. And so we must turn and address the broad range. We saw the blunt reality of life apart from Christ and the characterization of it, the characterization of sin, of how mankind stands before the just judge with hands over one's mouth, unable to atone for ourselves by anything that we can do or have done, but also how God provides that atonement for those who believe through his son's precious blood shed on the cross reminding us of his great grace and mercy, helping us to appreciate it all the more every day of our lives. We saw how as believers in Christ, we are new creations redeemed through his precious blood. Although at times we can falter and fail, and yet we see we have the blessing, the privilege of coming before our Lord and Savior to confess and repent of our sins, asking for forgiveness. And then being enabled through the working of the Holy Spirit to then live lives that are honoring and glorifying to God out of gratitude for what Christ has done for us on the cross. And we look forward to the day when Christ shall indeed return. When all will be made new. When sin will be no more. And we get to worship, praise, and glorify our great God, our Creator and Lord, the one who has redeemed and justified us through his Son's precious blood for all eternity. Amen. Dear Lord God and Heavenly Father, 
we thank you for this day, for this time that we can come together to worship you, to praise you, to glorify your name, to come to your word. Lord, we come before you and we recognize that we falter and fail. Each day we say and do things that we ought not to do, that are unbecoming of us as your children. But we thank you that you do not just abandon us, leave us with hands over our mouths, that you have provided a way, the way, through Christ's precious blood shed on the cross. Lord, help us each day to reflect on and appreciate all the more the good news of the gospel, the goodness of your grace, your great mercy towards us. Help us to take time to reflect on it. We love you, Lord. We thank you for this gift of your grace, this free and wonderful gift that you have given to us. We love you and we thank you and we praise you, O Lord. In your precious Son, Jesus' name we pray. Amen.